0: Friends and family of the bride and of the groom, welcome and thank you for coming here on this important date. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the sight of God and these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted by God. We've come to the wedding, Boaz and Ruth. At last we've made it to chapter 4. We looked in chapter 1 at the prodigal daughter, chapter 2, in the fields of grace, last time our great Redeemer, and this morning as we concentrate upon the Lord's table this morning, we're looking at the cost of redemption. And the message this morning is kind of divided into two parts, we're going to look at chapter 4 of Ruth, and then we're going to look at some practical applications. So when I come to the end of talking about Ruth chapter 4, I'm not through yet, I'm about halfway there, (laughs) so don't grab your coats just yet. Chapter one, weeping. Chapter two, working. Chapter three, waiting. And chapter four, the wedding. This book, the book of Ruth, is mainly about God working, God fulfilling his purpose in the midst of heartache and sorrow and difficult times. It's about the work of God in the darkest of times. It's about speaking to God about our needs, of hearing that he is a God of hope, so we do not lose hope. The focus of this book is upon what God is doing right now, not just back in Ruth's day, but what God is doing right now in our lives, in our families, our individual lives, in the church, in the country, and in the world. As we came to chapter three a few weeks ago, uh, we focused on what I termed intentional righteousness, and we just sang about that. The grace allows us to be intentionally purposeful about our righteousness, about our doing the right things in the right way. So the question chapter 3 answered, just to bring us back a week, what do a God-saturated man, a God-dependent young woman, and a God-exalting older woman do when they're filled with hope in the goodness of God? Now we all know, if I were to say God is good, you would say all the time, all the time. We know that, up here, but sometimes it's not down here. The book of Ruth is to tell us it's not just to be up here, it's to be in our lives. We should be here as a hopeful people. We should be here saying God is good. God is good all the time. God is doing something good today. He's doing something good and rich in my life. I don't understand it all, but God is doing something good and wonderful, and it comes out of his grace. We sang a lot about the grace of God today. The grace of God before the foundation of the world started this whole plan. The grace of God in our lives today, and you read it this morning, for all of eternity is going to be the grace of God. You're not here by accident. You're not just something that evolved. You are part of God's wonderful eternal plan. God is doing something great in your life, in your family, in the church, and you want to be shouting hallelujah this morning. God is good all the time. And so we talked about intentional righteousness, the intent to do the the righteous thing, the right thing. There's a kind of inactive righteousness that says, that's evil. I'm going to back away from it. But we're talking about intentional righteousness, discerning by the Holy Spirit, where do we go from here? I can't undo the past of my life. I can make certain amends. I can do certain things to make the Make up for the best, but I can't go back. But we do have today. And we have as long as God has us here, and then for all of eternity. So one of the lessons we learned from chapter 3 of Ruth is that the Holy Spirit enables us to see. The Holy Spirit enables us to envision how to solve problems, how to solve issues, how to deal with what's going on in our life. We just don't have to sit back and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. I guess that's all we can expect. The Holy Spirit will enable us and give us solutions, God-glorifying solutions. We saw it in chapter 3 with Naomi, verses 1 to 5. We saw it with Ruth in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. We saw it with Boaz in chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. In chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth make a bold move in the middle of the night. Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and affects says to Boaz, spread your wings over me. Spread your wings over me as a husband. I want to come under your authority. I want to come under your protection. And that's what we do with Jesus Christ. We say we want to come under your authority. We want to come under your protection. I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. I can't live the Christian life myself. I can't do anything. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And yet somehow we think we can. And the book of Ruth calls us to remembrance. We can do nothing without him. And so basically Ruth goes to Boaz and says, Boaz, marry me. And we're all happy, we're excited. Finally this widow is going to have a husband. She's going to get married. But there's one problem. Boaz says there's a problem. There's a kinsman who's closer than I am. There's somebody else who's first in line before I can redeem you. And we've got to solve that roadblock first. Another man has prior claim to marry Ruth. So the spiritually honest Boaz will not proceed. And we see in this particular life, the life of Ruth, one setback after another. You ever feel like that? You take two steps forward and... One step backwards. A lot of the stories of the Bible are about that, aren't they? Joseph. If you chart Joseph, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, he, but he's going to God's purpose. And that's the, that's the end of it. His glory, his honor. Uh, you you uh, see that in Job, you see it in Esther, you see it in Ruth, you see it in the children of Israel. 400 years they've been in bondage, they've been slaves. The plagues come. They're set free. Wow, 400 years of bondage. They're set free. They're on their way to the promised land. And what happens? (laughs) They get to the Red Sea. No boats waiting for them. What are they going to do now? They turn around and what do they hear? Pharaoh's horses and chariots are behind them. What are they going to do? Moses cries out to the Lord. And God says, Moses, stop crying. Get moving. And I think that's our problem. Sometimes we cry out to the Lord, we forget to move ahead. And they went through the the sea. The sea was parted. And the Pharaoh's horses and chariots came behind and they were drowned in the sea. And you get them here in the promised beginning into the promised land, and they're praising the Lord. We were slaves. We thought the end came when we got to the Red Sea, but God opened the Red Sea. And now we're thirsty. Oh, there's no no bottled water here. (laughs) What kind of place is this? God provides water from the rocks. They get happy again. A few days later, I'm hungry. (laughs) They got hungry. What does God do? He provides for them. So now they're happy again. And then the Amalekites come along. Does that sound like your life? Ups and downs and backs and forth and the hills and the mountains and the valleys. That is life. But God has given us grace. Grace sufficient. And we take that sufficient grace with us day by day, moment by moment. So the, the winding roads, the seeming roadblocks, the speed bumps that come along the way, they're part of life. But so is God's grace. Grace. See, God just doesn't show up after the trouble. It's like, clean up on aisle three. Look what he did over there. We've got to clean that aisle up. He's there. He knows all about it. He's planned the course. He's managing the course. He's managing the challenges with far-reaching purposes. So after that midnight rendezvous in chapter three, Boaz goes to the city gate. That's where we pick up with Ruth chapter four this morning. The city gate was where the official business was done, He went to the gate of Bethlehem. He wanted to discuss the matter of redeeming Elimelech's land. Uh, That's Naomi's uh, husband, the close relative, could make another claim. And so we read here in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down, and behold, that close relative, he's never named, we never find out who he is, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz And the word there is, he uh, goes out in a a bellow, a gentle bellow, whatever that is in the Hebrew. With a gentle bellow, he says to so-and-so, come over here, sit down. And he came and he sat down. Verse 2, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then verse 3, he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to Elimelech. And I thought to inform you saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the man appears, Boaz calls out uh, for the man to come over, and then Boaz calls for a minion, M-I-N-Y-A-N, minion means to count. And you have to be able to count to 10 to do this. You need 10 Jewish men. If you have nine of the best Hebrew scholars there, it doesn't work. Somehow, God's word says there has to be 10 people who come together into the place of the gate. Remember, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when the angel came and said, you better get out of there, I'm going to destroy. He's sitting in the gate as one of the rulers, as one of the elders when Abraham bought the, uh, the grave for Sarah, that transaction took place in the gate. Deuteronomy 16.18 says that Israel shall have judges and officers shall be in the gates of the city. A place where the business is transacted. Uh, Eli waiting for the battle. Remember, Eli was kind of uh, chubby, <laughs> waiting for the results of the battle, waiting there in the gate. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Have any of you ever been attacked by a gate? Gates don't attack us. It's what it stands for. It's what's behind the gate. It's the place of um, God's authority for schemes and plans in particular in this case. So business transactions... The court was convened and public announcements were all made in the gate. It's an important place. 10 men was a number of witnesses. 10 constituted a quorum. Even today in some synagogues, you need 10 men to gather together to have a synagogue service. Because somehow 10 would gather together would be an assembly. Remember Abraham bargaining with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? There were 50 righteous people. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? He gets down to 10 and he quits because he knows less than 10. God's not going to honor less than 10. Historically, 10 were required for a marriage as well. So we've got everything together. We have a court. We have a place of proceedings, a wonderful announcement. Leviticus 25, uh, 23 says, The land shall not be sold forever, For the land is mine. Reminds us this morning that everything we have belongs to God. You don't have one thing that doesn't belong to God. And what are you going to take to heaven with you? I think the only thing we can take to heaven with us are our children and those we bring to Christ. Other than that, everything belongs to him. Let's remember that this morning. It's not ours. Even this church, it's not ours, it's his. Everything belongs to him. And that's one of the the great lessons of the book of Ruth. We are stewards of all of life. remember that Ruth is trusting in God. She knows that God's will can be known and experienced. Boaz lays the situation before the unnamed kinsman. Naomi is giving giving up what property she has. And it's the duty of the nearer kinsman to buy it so he may have an inheritance to stay in the family. Boaz is doing the right thing. He's moving forward in decency and in order. And to our dismay, verse 4, the kinsman said, I'll buy it. Oh, we thought uh, Boaz and Ruth were going to get together. There's another twist. There's another turn in the story. The story has changed a little bit. We don't want him to redeem it. Who are we really rooting for? If you're like me, you're voting for Boaz. We want Boaz to marry Ruth. The irony of the setback is it's being caused by righteousness. They're doing the right thing. And even this caused a setback. Just about when we're ready to say, stop the scene. Let's change this all around. There's another complication. Another complication. Sounds like life, doesn't it? Boaz says to the nearer kinsman, my paraphrase in verse 5, you know, don't you, that Naomi has a daughter-in-law, so when you fulfill the part of the kinsman redeemer, you must take her as your wife and raise up offspring in the name of her husband, Madon. That's according to Deuteronomy 25. When the man agreed to redeem the land, Boaz said, remember, there's something more than the land. You're going to have to marry Ruth. And you'll have to raise up An heir. And then to our great relief, this other man says, I can't do it. I can't marry her. It's just too complicated for me. And we see that Boaz is going to go to the wedding feast with Ruth on his arm. And we're happy. You see, the man understood that marrying this woman would mar his inheritance. And therefore, he does what? He takes off something each one of you has on. Maybe some of you kicked your shoes off already. Uh, he takes off his shoe. That's interesting. Uh, he removed his shoe to signify he was withdrawing his claim. It's a rather odd custom, a biblical custom called shallots. Uh, and the shallots, people who did that, who took off their, their shoe, were called the house of the shoeless or bare soles. B-A-R-E-S-O-L-E-S, bare soul's kin. And it took took away the, the legal transaction from him and transferred it over to Boaz. Moses at the burning bush, what did he do? He took off his shoes. I want to just take us over to one passage over in Acts. Acts chapter 7, if you want to turn there. And Stephen is giving his sermon just before he's martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. Moses, as you know, was brought up in Pharaoh's household. He spent 40 years there. One day, when he was around 40 years old, he went out and became a a one-man-free-the-Hebrew campaign. He's going to free the Hebrews one at a time. And uh, Stephen picks that up in his message. Over in Acts 7, verse 27, uh, but... He who did his neighbor wrong pushed Moses away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Now, just drop down to verse 35. Forty years have passed. This Moses whom they rejected, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer. You see, He had the wrong task at the wrong time. We've got to be in time, God's place, doing God's thing. And when the next 40 years had passed, Moses is now 80 years old. He has the encounter at the burning bush. God identifies himself as the great I am. And he says, I will redeem them. I'm going to do it. I'm going to use you, Moses. Now's your time. You're ready to let me do it. I will do it through you. And so Moses uh, takes off his shoes and comes under Delegated authority. Now, same thing happens over in Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua meets the angel of the Lord about to go into Jericho. He doesn't know how he's going to conquer Jericho. God hasn't told him yet how that's going to work. And Joshua goes out to be alone, and the angel meets him there, and he says, Take off your shoe. Hear from God. Come under his authority. And that's what we say this morning as we come to the table. We're under the authority of Jesus Christ. He's not only our Savior, he's our Lord. He's our master, he's our king. And so the shoes are taken off, the transaction is made. Verse 8 and 9 of Ruth chapter 4. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses, I have bought all that was a liminex from the hand of Naomi. And, verse 10, moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Manon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the inheritance. And from this position at the gate, You are witnesses. Everything was done absolutely legally. It was done in the gate. It was done with the ten witnesses. It was done the the removal of the shoe. And all the people who were at the gate, verse 11, and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord, make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephraim and be famous in Bethlehem. And so the wedding goes forward, there's there's ten witnesses to this. Everything looks good, doesn't it? But did you forget chapter one? Remember Ruth was married for ten years? And how many children did she have? Maybe she's barren, maybe she can't have children. And that's what we're all looking forward to having here, the wedding and the children. The jubilant friends of Boaz and Ruth pray. Look at verse 11 and 12. And all the people who were at the gate, and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. They prayed. And we know how it, an- how it ends. God answers that prayer. God does hear. He does answer prayer. And the people who are there at the gate know that Rachel and Leah were alternately, they were barren and they were fruitful. It goes back and forth in the book of Genesis. Uh, one after the other. But God raised up the 12 tribes of Israel through Rachel and Leah and their handmaids. And therefore the prayer is for Ruth, may you be like these women. May you be part of this wonderful family, the family of Abraham, and raise up. And may your child be famous in Bethlehem. We know from Ruth, David will come. And from David, Jesus and what do we sing at Christmastown? Oh, little house of, oh, little town of Bethlehem. We sing all about Bethlehem, the house of bread, all because of what's happening here. Does God keep his promise? Hundreds of years pass by, and each little detail is being fulfilled throughout the word of God. And so verse 13, we're real happy. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and she went in, and he went into to her, And God gave her conception, and she bore a son. Ah, there's the ending. But then you get down to verse 14 and following. The story shifts again. One more shift. The focus is not on Ruth. It's not on Boaz. The focus is back on Naomi, where all the story started in chapter 1. It began with death. It ends with life. It ends with Naomi's gain. when she said, I've lost everything. I have nothing left. A son is born. But whose son is he? Ruth's son? Ruth and Boaz's son? Look at verse 17. And the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, this is the son born to... Naomi. So who is the Goel here? The baby is the Redeemer. Because he's going to lead us to this, which leads us to the marriage supper that we sang about earlier and read about. The baby is the Goel. The baby is really the Redeemer. We'll look at that in just a moment. It's a complete reversal of Naomi's situation. She had said she left empty. Now she's full. The Lord has given her a son. God was at work in the darkest of times. Naomi didn't see it, but God was at work. If we would trust God implicitly, we wouldn't have all these questions. We'd simply say, Lord, you're doing something wonderful for your grace through me in this situation. Our situation may seem bitter like Naomi's, but God is at work for our good, whether we see it or not. And we love to quote Romans 8.28 to other people. But it works for us too. God works all things together for his good. And one of the reasons the book of Ruth was written was to tell us to look for those signposts of grace. Look for them. There's grace out there. Look, there's grace along the way. It was written to help us trust God's grace when the clouds are so thick, when the way seems so difficult, you can't even see the road signs sometimes. Again and again, God is at work through the setbacks. And we can keep looking at the setbacks, or we can look at the end of the story. Naomi lost her husband and her sons. God gave her Ruth. She could think of no kinsman. God gave Boaz. When Ruth was barren, she had a child. And we say, after all, it's just a child, and a grandmother holding a little child at the end of the story, Eh, that's a nice story. A lot of heartache along the way, but it's a nice story. But that's not the end of the story. If that's all you see, you've missed it. The scope of the story is much greater. If the story of Ruth ends in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging and smothering a little baby with kisses, you say, oh, isn't that nice? That's really nice. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. Verse 17, we read that the uh, child was named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Suddenly, we realize something far greater is being worked out. Do you realize in your life, am I something far greater is being worked out than just our little, little piece that we feel? Something far greater. God is doing something far greater. And what he's doing lasts for eternity. We used to say only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God is doing something eternal through our lives. The fact that he saved us and loved us and wants to take us home to heaven, that's real nice. But that's not what it's all about. It's about his glory. It's about his plan being worked out. A plan that he had before the foundation of the world And it's going to roll for all of eternity. And if you think this message is long, eternity is a whole lot longer. (laughs) But the the, uh, Holy Spirit who superintends the words written in the book of Ruth foresees the greatness of the future and says a child is going to come. going to be the grandfather of David. And when you think of David, you're going to think about the kingdom and you're going to think about the king who's coming and the covenant of the king and the one who's the restorer of life and the nourisher of our old age. In verse 14 and 15, the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, without a goel. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be your restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to you. And there we see the redeemer is the baby. Restorer of life, the nourisher of the old age. Certainly, Obed refreshed her life, gave her uh, hope in her old age. But there's a more significant level, as we said, that through David's offspring would come the Messiah, the redeemer. David's better son, Jesus Christ. Blind Bartimaeus calls out, Jesus, son of David. Skips all the generations, and gets right to David, to Jesus. That's where it heads. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Titus tells us, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And so the account of Ruth at one level, is the bittersweet providences of life. Things happen. He governs famines and faithfulness. The availability of Ruth and of Boaz. The birth of a child. And the narrative shows us that God is at work. Even in the darkest of hours. But at another level, it's much greater than that. Larger than a family. And their sorrows and their joys. It's about God's glory. It's about God's grace. About his redeeming power. The application of the glory certainly happens to us first personally when we focus upon Ruth. She was a Moabitess. She was excluded. The law said you can't come in. Grace said, come on in. The law kept her out. Grace invited her in. Grace invites us to this table this morning. Not our righteousness, not our goodness, nothing we've done, but the grace of God invites us to come. Ruth was an, from an idolatrous Moabite before she found the God of her salvation. She didn't merit it. God pursued her. It was grace, and it was free. Ruth was not a Jew, so how did she get in the <laughs> the lineage of Jesus Christ? In fact, if you go over to Matthew chapter one, there's four women listed there, and they're all rather suspicious backgrounds. You look at them. God is saying, I'm inviting all to salvation. Jesus Christ is going to be the Savior of the nations. In fact, the Jewish high priest, just before Christ went to Calvary, prophesied better than he probably knew over in John chapter 11. He said, Jesus will die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children who are scattered abroad. The plan of salvation is for all nations. And so through his his veins flow the blood of the nations. Different peoples. That means we should not exclude anyone. We should not be exclusive, uh, ethnocentric or racist in any way. The book of Ruth tells us all are included in God's plan of salvation, not just for us, Over in Revelation, uh, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and ethnic group and nation. The redemption of Christ is for all. And so that's the story of Ruth. Ruth has gone from loneliness to love. She's gone from laboring to rest. She's gone from emptiness to wealth. She's gone from bondage to freedom, from worry to peace, from disgrace to glory, from fear to insurance. And that's what happens in Christ Jesus. He takes us from one kingdom. You were in the kingdom of darkness, and now you are in the kingdom of light. For a divine purpose, for an eternal purpose. You're part of the kingdom of God, part of the king's plan. And the book of Ruth reminds us that God's purpose for his people is to connect us to something far greater than ourselves. It's not just about me, not just about you. It's about the kingdom of God, the king's calling in our lives. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives mean a lot more than we think. Our lives have eternal impact. He didn't just save us to call us home, but to make an eternal impact. There's always a connection between the ordinary and God's plan, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant. I believe it's part of God's cosmic mosaic that that he's putting together. In fact, over in Ephesians, he's doing all of this in the church to show to the angels and the powers and the principalities his grace. It's all because of his grace. So the angels, the good angels... But the principalities and powers, the evil ones, are seeing the grace of God at work, right here. Among us today, Ephesians 3, a deep satisfaction. Serving a widowed mother-in-law. Gleaning in a field. Eh. Getting married, having a baby. All really ordinary things, weren't they? But they were part of God's plan. An eternal plan, an eternal purpose. They're connected to eternity because they bought us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Part of a much bigger plan. And I want you to know this morning as a believer, if you're a Christ follower today, you are part of a much bigger plan. It's not just about here and now, it's about eternity. A much bigger plan. And so this story points forth to David. David points to Jesus. Jesus points to resurrection and redemption. He points to a time when death shall be no more. There should be no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the former things are passed away. It's all pointing far ahead. And so I want to tell you this morning, the best is yet to come. I absolutely believe that. No matter how old we are, the best is yet to come in our lives. To the man and the woman who follow Christ in obedience of faith that flows from faith, God is at work. After hearing Boaz's statement of intent, the witnesses present them and bless them and uh, want them to be uh, faithful. They want them to be fruitful. And so the book ends with the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, the birth of their first son. The women of Bethlehem are rejoicing with Naomi since she now has an heir and things are restored. Uh, they name the child Obed, O-V-E-D, O Obed, servant. He's a servant. He's going to give birth to the servant, Jesus Christ, the ultimate service servant. And so the book ends with a thrilling genealogy. You love genealogies, don't you? The songs are hard to get through when you're reading the word. But here's the genealogy that's there. It takes us right on through to the birth of David. Then you come to the New Testament and you see from, uh, from uh, David right on to Jesus Christ. Four women there. One's a prostitute. One's a Moabite. One's Bathsheba. It's all in his genealogy. Because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came for sinful men. And if there's some sin in your life today it needs to be confessed, we bring it to the cross. And then we leave it there. Don't let that hinder you from moving forward in your Christian life. If there's something there that's hindering you, say, oh, I can't because, bring it to the Savior. and Let him take care of it. And so I should ask Ramey and David this morning, how much does a wedding cost? <laughs> a whole lot. <laughs> For Boaz, it was not cheap. He had to redeem Ruth, the land of Elimelech, but because of his love, he did it. He was willing. How much does the marriage supper of the Lamb cost? That we're going to celebrate this morning. We can't begin to understand that Jesus changed himself eternally for our sakes. He gave himself. He, God, so loved the world. Christ so loved that he gave himself. He loved us so that we can love him. That we might be his bride. Without spot and without wrinkle. I know some of us, that's hard to think about being without spot or without wrinkles. They come. But all things are new in Jesus Christ. He makes all things new. And Romans tells us that we are redeemed from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day we'll be redeemed from the presence of sin. And so the blessing here in Ruth was for one man, one family. It was for community, and it came for all of eternity the lineage of Jesus Christ. Bethlehem became known as the city of David. Born this day in the city of David, is a savior in Bethlehem. And Remember how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem? I don't mean on a donkey. They were in Nazareth. God has to get them to Bethlehem at a very inopportune time, we would think. Mary's just about ready to give birth, but she had to give birth in Bethlehem, because Ruth tells us that. Don't you love this book? It all fits together. God's put it all together. And if he put the book together, and he greeted you, he puts you all together. And he has a wonderful plan for your life, the blessings that come. And so Ruth was a blessing to Boaz, to Bethlehem, to Naomi, to the nation of Israel, to the whole world. And so that night when Ruth lay at the feet of Boaz, the Lord of the harvest, she asked to be covered. We come covered this morning by the blood of Jesus Christ, his eternal plan. And so as we come to the table this morning, let's renew our commitment to the eternal work that God is doing. We enter the Christian life, and we sang about it this morning so beautifully. We enter the Christian life by grace, and we live the day by day by grace. Do we mess up? Do we disappoint and fail? Yeah, we do. But that's what grace is all about. Not license to fail, but covering when we do fail. So the book of Ruth closes. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz have all passed from view. But our kinsman redeemer remains our focus this morning we know that we are the bride of Christ, and one day we will sit down with all of the saints. The marriage Supper of the Lamb. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, the first book that was written. Job has gone through a series of harrowing experiences, tested and tried in just about any way you can think about. And then Job says, in Job 19, I know that my Goel lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Whatever you've gone through in life this morning, can you say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and come and partake this morning at the table. I know that my Redeemer lives. The Lord's table is not meant to replace the Passover. It was instituted at a Passover ceremony, and it draws from the Passover but does not replace it. We remind you that this is the Lord's table. It does not belong to any one individual, any one church, any one denomination. It's open to all who have repented and received Christ as the only way of salvation. And yet the scripture admonishes us as we come to the table to examine ourselves before we partake. If there's sin, it needs to be confessed that he's faithful and just to forgive. Several weeks ago, I asked Remy if we could have, just for this week, a silent communion. No music, so the musicians and all of us can just concentrate upon our Redeemer, upon our redemption, the amazing gift of our salvation, and that we might proclaim as we come to this table, we come by faith alone, we come by grace alone, we come through Christ, our Redeemer alone, and we come to the glory of God alone. So today we're going to pass out the elements, we'll wait for one another before partaking, The unleavened bread will be served first, then we'll partake. The cup will be passed. After we all have the cup, Ramey is going to lead us in singing through twice, I love you, Lord, and then we'll partake of the cup together. At the Passover, there were four cups. There's the cup of sanctification. That means we have to come clean before the Lord. The cup of the plagues, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. Most likely, Jesus took the cup of redemption, the third cup. And Jesus held the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you, the cup of redemption. So I want us to really allow the Holy Spirit to direct our thinking this morning to our great redemption and the cup of redemption and Christ's sacrifice. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's alive, but the cup is meant to remind us of salvation, but also the marriage supper of the lamb